All right, good morning, everybody. Oh, it's great to be here. It's uh, wonderful to be out of the snow and ice. Uh, I, I grew up in Los Angeles, uh, North Hollywood area, and just being here sort of reminds me of what my life uh, used to be like back there. I uh, became a Christian when I was 20 years old, and it's been almost 30 years. I'm almost 50, and I like the name Advent Hope because I'm still an Adventist and I've still got that hope. Praise God. And uh, just about two months ago, my family moved out of California, my wife and my two little children, two little munchkins, four-year-old and a one-year-old, and moved up uh, north of Spokane, Washington. So for the last couple of weeks, I have been shoveling snow more than I've ever shoveled in my life. I don't know what's worse, snow and ice or earthquakes, but I guess wherever you are, you've got to deal with something, right? And uh, when Jesus comes, then we won't have to deal with any of this. And that's our, that's our hope. So it's good to be here, good to be in warmer weather. Uh, it's just a blessing to be in Southern California and have a chance to talk to you. I'm very thankful for the opportunity. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Revelation, chapter 14. I know I'm on a schedule here because you have a church service coming after this, and I've got to talk fast. I don't think I can talk as fast as Leo Scriven, if you've ever heard him preach. But I will do my best. We've got a lot to cover uh, I'm going to be doing a three-part series here on a, an issue that is rather controversial. It's called the Character of God Controversy. Uh, Dr. Chris Lewis, I don't know if any of you know him, Dr. Chris Lewis, any friends of Dr. Lewis? Well, he and I have co-authored a book, just came out uh, just within the last few months, called The Character of God Controversy. The subtitle is A Close Look at the Intense Love and Justice of Almighty God. And I brought a box of these, and so if you would like to get a copy um, at a discount at the end of my time here tonight after sundown, we'll have a box in the back. And it's just a, it's just a big issue. It's one that I've been wrestling with for many years, and um, I know here in Loma Linda especially, there's great interest in the character of God. And so we're going to tackle some of these topics. And before we read our opening text in Revelation 14.1, I just want to share just a quick quick. Uh, experience that just really touched my heart, probably more than almost anything can, um, except for Jesus directly. It was about, oh, maybe three weeks ago, my family were living in a little rental property up near Newport, Washington, surrounded by snow and ice, and our little uh, four-year-old boy, we're hoping to buy a house soon. Our house finally sold in California, thank the Lord. So we're getting ready to purchase a piece of property. But anyway, we've been sitting in a rental property for about a month. And, and just about three weeks ago, my little boy walked up to me and in the bathroom. I don't think I was brushing my teeth or something. And he looked up at me and he said, Daddy, he said, I want to be just like you. I want to be just like Daddy. I thought, wow, uh, what, a, what a beautiful sound, you know, to hear from your, your little boy. And then I thought, Lord, that's quite a responsibility. My boy wants to be just like me. So I, I just thought, Lord, help me to be like you so I can reflect you to him. So if he's like me, then he'll be like you. I mean, isn't that what it's all about? Uh, being like Jesus. And of course, we need to know Jesus as he is. We need to understand his character. And this is a, a controversial subject within, within, outside the church and within, within the church is the nature of the character of God, his attributes. And that's what we're going to do our best to look at today uh, according to the Bible. So Revelation 14, 1, and let's pray again before we read. We've got a lot to talk about, three parts. This is a big, big time together, so let's pray. 
Heavenly Father, thank you that I am here in Loma Linda, and we pray in the name of Jesus for the Holy Spirit, please, to bless these talks. We need your power, we need your, your love, and we need your truth. Help me as I tackle these topics, and I pray that I will lift you up and be just a vessel to reveal your character according to the Bible and as revealed in Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Okay, Revelation 14, as we know, is a mighty chapter. It is the chapter that has gripped me since I've become a Seventh-day Adventist. It's one of the greatest chapters in the Bible dealing with prophecy and the end times. I'm not going to read every verse, but in verses 14 to 16, it describes Jesus coming on a white cloud. And I'm looking forward to that, aren't you? That's our greatest hope is that Jesus will come and get us out of here. In verses 6 to 12, it describes the message, the three angels' messages to prepare us to meet Jesus when he comes on the white cloud. And then in verses 1 to 5, Revelation 14 describes the people who have been prepared to meet him when he comes on the cloud. They're described as a group called 144,000. One of the key characteristics of this group is in verse 1. John said, I looked and lo, a lamb stood on Mount Zion and with him 144,000 having his father's name written where? Written in their foreheads. Right. This is a prophecy about God's name being written in the foreheads of his people. Now, when the Bible talks about the forehead, this doesn't mean the little bit of skin above your nose between your eyes, right? When the Bible talks about the forehead, what's it talking about? talking about your mind. That's right. What's going on on the inside? God wants to do something inside of our minds. And then when it, says he, when it says he wants to put his name in our foreheads, what, what does that mean? What is his name? That's right. And I'll show you. There's a clear verse on this in uh, Exodus chapter 34 that God's name biblically is his character. In other words, God wants his character, the attributes of his character, to be written indelibly inside the minds, the thinking, and the hearts of his people before Jesus comes. And that is one of the characteristics of those who are ready for his return. Uh, The battle is on, isn't it? And the battle's going on inside of the forehead. And one of the ways that the devil can prolong his existence is by trying to prevent this prophecy from occurring. He doesn't want God's name in our foreheads. He wants to stay around as long as possible, and so he is doing everything he can to prevent this from taking place. Doesn't that make sense? Now, there's a lot of ways that he can do this. Uh, He can do it just by sitting in front of people, sitting in front of a television set for too long, getting all the wrong things in the forehead, all the things of Hollywood. But another way that the devil can prevent this from happening is by misinterpreting the character of God. Uh, There's a statement in the Great Controversy that has impressed me deeply. Great Controversy, page 569. It says, it is Satan's constant effort to misrepresent the character of God, the nature of sin, and the real issues at stake in the Great Controversy. That is one of the devil's constant activities is to try to misrepresent who's up there. And it's very important for us in our relationship with him, in our, in our eternal existence, our, etern- our eternal, eternal life, is to uh, know him as he is. First uh, John chapter 3, verse 2 talks about seeing him as he is. And that's what we want. 
Now, let's go back to the book of Exodus and let's take a look at chapter 34 because this chapter describes more clearly than probably any other chapter, at least verbally, the attributes of God's character, of his name. And, of course, those attributes were then revealed in Jesus uh, in an unparalleled way. No human has ever revealed God's character perfectly except for Jesus himself from birth to death and resurrection. Uh, Exodus chapter 34 describes God's character. And maybe I should just uh, make a quick comment about this article I've got sitting in front of me. I, I read a report some time ago about a cruise ship. I don't know if there's any cruisers out there, but a cruise ship that went down, it sank off the coast of Greece. And the headline here, this was in the Fresno Bee, says, captain, cruise captain blames currents. And two, two people disappeared, and they don't even know, I don't think they ever found them. About 115, I'm sorry, 1,500 people were on board that ship. And this is what the captain said as to the reason why his vessel sank. It says here that uh, his vessel floundered on the volcanic reef and sank in the Aegean Sea, and he blamed strong currents for the accident, state-run television reported. So it was the currents that were underneath the water that moved the ship in the wrong direction, and eventually it sank. And there are currents today, isn't that right? Currents without and within that are trying to crash us on the rocks. And we need to know what the Bible says and make sure that we make it safely into port. Exodus chapter 34, verse 5, describes God coming down on Mount Sinai to Moses and revealing his character. Verse 5 says, The Lord descended in a cloud, and he stood with him there, and he proclaimed the name of the Lord. And if you compare that with, like we read Revelation 14.1, God's name is going to be in his foreheads. Here's his name being proclaimed and described. Verse 6 says, The Lord passed by before him, and he proclaimed. And he said, The Lord, the Lord God, merciful and gracious, long-suffering and abundant in goodness and truth, keeping mercy for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, and that will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children and upon the children's children to the third and the fourth generation. And then it says, Moses made haste and bowed his head toward the earth, and he worshipped. It says in chapter 33 that he was hiding, God put him in a little cleft of a rock, and he was, as he was hiding in there, God put his hand over this cleft and maybe little cracks in his fingers. And Moses peeked through and saw this revelation of God's glory and of his character passing in front of him, his name. And then he revealed the attributes, attributes of his character. It's a powerful revelation. And as you look closely at verses 6 and 7, we see that God's character biblically is a blend, isn't it? It's a blend of various attributes. Um, some of you ladies, probably many of you ladies, are good cooks. And you know that when you cook a good meal, you have to blend various seasonings and condiments and spices and different kinds of ingredients. And once you put them all together in the right way, then it tastes good, right? Now, I'm not much of a cook, so I can't really speak by experience. Uh, my wife does a lot of the cooking. Before I became, a, uh, actually before I was married, 
I didn't really cook too much. I just uh, compiled. I was a compiler. I would make sandwiches, put the avocado on there and the veggie burger and whatever else, and that's pretty much what I ate. But I know that we need to, that cooks need to put the right ingredients together in order to make the meal taste good. And when it comes to the character of God, biblically, when you look at these verses, it's very clear that God's character is a blend, an exquisite blend of various, um, you might say, spices and uh, condiments and seasonings, various attributes of his character, and they all come together in a perfect blend. And when you look at the verses, God is telling us that his character is a blend of uh, mercy. Mercy is definitely, in fact, it's heavy on the mercy side, isn't it? A lot of mercy and graciousness, and then you've got goodness, and you've also got in verse 6 at the end, truth. Truth is part of the character of God. Don't want to overlook truth. And then verse 7 talks more about his mercy and about his forgiveness, his willingness to forgive iniquity, transgression, and sin. And then the last part of verse 7 talks about another attribute of his character, which one word, what word would we use? Justice, that's right. The justice side of his character is described at the end of verse 7. And I believe that when you put all these elements together, mercy, truth, justice, that underneath them all is, uh, is a word that starts with L. O, V, E, right. It's love. Love underlies everything that God does. It motivates him supremely. Now, if you look at um, history and if you look at Christianity, and if you look at, at uh, even within our own church, there are definitely extremes about the character of God. Some people, and this has been going on for a long time, see God as being so just that there's not much mercy. They don't see any mercy or love in the Lord. And that's a, an extreme imbalance, wouldn't you say? And then there are others that feel like God is so merciful and so loving and so kind that what do they ignore? They ignore his justice, that's right. They don't see justice in the, in the character of God. And then there are others that do see justice. They see love and justice, but they pervert justice. And we know about the current within the evangelical world, this strong current that says that God's justice will be manifested one day by him taking the lost and placing them somewhere and burning them forever and ever and ever and ever. That is definitely an imbalanced view an unbalanced view of the character of God. And we know that from our study of the Bible. Now, then there are those that feel that God's justice is so minimal that he doesn't punish sin at all. And within our church, uh, there is a controversy going on right now about the nature of God's justice, especially verse 7, when verse 7 says that he will visit, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children. What is the nature of his visitation? That's what we're going to talk about. Uh, there are three different views right now that are contending for supremacy within Adventism. Three different views. And one view is that God's visitation is simply, uh, you might call it passive, where he just withdraws his hand and he allows natural consequences to run their course. A little bit like a smoker, if someone allowing a smoker to get lung cancer. It's his own fault, he's been smoking, and then you just let, let him go and let him get it. And there's a view about the uh, justice of God and his visitation that it is entirely passive, where he just lets natural consequences run their course. Now then there's another view, which is 
that God's visitation is active, that he himself does sometimes uh, personally, directly punish sin. And these views often contend against each other, don't they? And then what I would call a third view, which is really, uh, I think it's the correct one, personally, which is a combination of A and B. That yes, there are times when God does allow natural consequences to run their course, when he withdraws his hand and lets sin or Satan or nature uh, take over. But then there are also times when he does legitimately and actively punish sin. And I believe that you can find both in the Bible and in the spirit of prophecy very clearly. And that if we don't see both, we're not balanced. That's my conviction. And I'm going to try to prove this as we go along today. Now let's go to Exodus chapter 32. Exodus 32 and I'm going to try to highlight this chapter. I'm looking at my clock in about 15 minutes and then take the last 10 minutes to really go deep into a very, very powerful issue. When you look at Exodus 34, like we read, about God's visiting, that yes, he is forgiving, but yet he will not clear the guilty, but he visits. This attribute of God's character, his justice. How do we know what is the nature of that visitation? To me, the answer is clear as I study my Bible, and that is that when you go back to Exodus 32, it's really the context of Exodus 34. Exodus 32 is the biblical background of the revelation of God's character in Exodus 34. Now, what happened in Exodus 32 was a terrible crisis. What happened was the Israelites decided to give up their faith in the true God and to worship a block of metal. It's the account of the building of the golden calf. Now I'm just going to look at some of the highlights in this chapter. In chapter 32, verse 1 says, when, when the people that had come out of Egypt, the mixed multitude, saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mount, he had been up in the mount for a long time, the people gathered together, gathered themselves together to Aaron, and they said to him, up, make us gods which shall go before us, for as for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So here's the restless crowd. Moses had been gone for a while. And they came to Moses and they said, or to Aaron, and they said, uh, make us a God. Now, one of the important issues when it comes to God's character is that we have to make sure that we do not make an image of, a, of our own God in our minds, but that we let God be God that we let him show us who he is instead of trying to create him in a way that we want him to be. Doesn't that make sense? Because that's idolatry. And in a sense, that's what the Israelites were doing. They wanted to make their own God. Now, Aaron was in charge in Moses' absence. And Aaron should have stood up against this. But what kind of a person was Aaron? Verse 2 says, Aaron said to them, he said, bring, bring your golden earrings. Break off your golden earrings, which are in the ears of your wives and your sons and your daughters, and then bring them to me. So the people broke off the golden earrings, which were in the ears, and they brought them to Aaron. And he received them at their hand, and he fashioned them with a graving, graven tool, and he made it into a molten calf. And then he said, this is your, these are your gods, O Israel, which have brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Uh, Aaron, if you study his character... He was a really nice guy. And I believe that we do need to be nice people, obviously. God's character is definitely 
revealed in kindness and compassion. But there are times when people need to take a stand. And Aaron did not have that attribute of his character. He was a weak, yielding man who was just almost, you could say, too nice. And he didn't want to do this, really, but the pressure was on. The people were pressuring him and saying, let's do it. And so he yielded. And he went along with it. And he fashioned this golden calf. And there's a big difference between Aaron's character and Moses' character. Well, once they did this, in verse 5 it says, When Aaron saw it, he built an altar before it, and he made a proclamation, and he said, Tomorrow is a feast to the Lord. Feast to the Lord. Feast to Yahweh. So that's what they did. They had a big feast the next day to the Lord. Now, was it really the Lord that they were worshiping? No, it was their image of the Lord that had now materialized in the form of a block of metal. It wasn't the Lord. Verse 6 says, They rose up early in the morning, the people, they offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink, and they rose up to play. They began to have a big party at the base of Mount Sinai in front of this golden, glistening calf. Uh, in verses 7 to 8, high up on Mount Sinai, God knew exactly what was going on, and, and he began to communicate instructions to Moses about what was going on down in the valley. And he told, him, he, he told him he had to go down. Get down to the bottom of the mountain because we are in the midst of an emergency situation. And so Moses began to go down. In verse 15 it says he turned and he went down the mountain. He had two tables in his hands, the Ten Commandments, which were written on both sides. On the one side and on the other were they written. The tables were the work of God and the writings were the writing of God graven upon tables. So here comes Moses down the mountain with the Ten Commandments which are a description of the attributes of God's character. And he meets Joshua on the way down. And verse 17 says, Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted down at the bottom of the mountain. And he said to Moses, there is, the, there is a noise of war in the camp. There's a battle going on down there. I think the, our, our people are being invaded by some, some, some enemy. Well, Moses knew that was not the case. And it says that uh, he said to them in verse 8, it is not the voice of them that shout for mastery, neither is it the voice of them that cry for being overcome, but it is the noise of them that sing, do I hear. They're having a party. Verse 19 tells us that it came to pass as soon as they came near to the camp that Moses saw the calf and the dancing, and his anger waxed hot, and he cast the tables out of his hands, and he broke them at the, at the base of the mountain. Now, I imagine there was great acoustics in that valley where we live up now in Newport, Washington. Uh, there's surrounding hills, and when trucks or cars drive through on any one of the highways, Highway 2 or Highway 20, if you're up on a hill, you can hear the acoustics. You can hear the sounds of the, the noise of this traffic for miles and miles. And I imagine there was great acoustics there at the bottom of the mountain. And all of a sudden, when Moses showed up and he took those tables and he broke them, that that noise could be heard all over the camp. More than a million people could probably hear that sound. And all of a sudden, the party ended. And they turned and they looked at the face of Moses. And it says in the Bible that Moses' anger waxed hot. He was deeply uh, passionate about what was going on. 
Now, if you look at Moses and his hot anger, and you look at Aaron, which one is revealing more in this situation the character of God? Well, biblically, I mean, the answer is obvious. It was Moses. Moses had a true heart for the people, and this was a very, very serious situation. Verse 20 says, He took the calf which they had made, he burned it in the fire, he ground it to powder, and then he made the children of Israel drink it. And Moses said to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought so great a sin upon them? Verse 22, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord wax hot. You know the people, they are set on mischief. They, they said to me, Make us gods, which should go before us. As for this Moses, the man that brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. And I said to them, whoever has any gold, let him break it off. So they gave it to me, and then I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. <laughs> Is that really what happened? Obviously not. Obviously not. And this also shows us something about Aaron. Not only was he yielding and compromising when he should have been firm, but he also was very reticent to admit that he was wrong. And that is a character trait that we need to avoid, and we all need to be willing to recognize times when we are wrong. If we've sinned, if we've done wrong, if we've made a mistake, if we've gone in the wrong direction, if we've said things that aren't true, uh, we need to own up to it and humble our hearts and say, yes, I did it. I I'm wrong. I misrepresented you, Lord, before my family or before my friends or whatever, whatever we've done. That's vital for our preparation for the coming of Jesus is to be willing to humble ourselves and admit when we are wrong. Well, the plot thickens. Uh, in verse 29, it says, When Moses saw the people, they were naked. Aaron had made them naked unto their shame among their enemies. Or verse 25. Verse 26 says, Then Moses stood at the gate of the camp, and he said, Who is on the Lord's side? Let him come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered themselves together unto him. Now, this is a very interesting moment, what's going on here. This is an emergency situation, and Moses stands there and says to this whole group, he said, Whoever's on the Lord's side, let him come to me. Now, when you read the account of this in the book Patriarchs and Prophets, the chapter is called Idolatry on Mount Sinai. When you read it, it's very clear that what happened was the Levites went over onto Moses' right hand. And the Levites were a group of people that did not participate in any way in the idolatry. They did not worship the golden calf. They didn't go along with this. They stood up, stood firm, just like Aaron should have done. They were clean in this situation. And they came to his right hand. And then Patriarchs and Prophets also says that on his left hand came those that did worship the golden calf, but they were repentant. They realized when they saw Moses' face, when they heard the tables crash, when they realized what they had done, the Holy Spirit convicted them and they realized they had made a mistake and they wanted to come back to the true God and they went over onto his left, two groups the faithful and the repentant. Now, that leaves one group left. And what was that group? It was a group in the middle. And it was a group that refused to change. It was an unrepentant group. Some of the leaders who had instigated this course in idolatry, uh, they were there in the middle. They were defiant. 
they were uh, unmovable. They would not repent. And when you think about it, this group actually had become a very, very serious threat to the entire camp. And not only that, but to the whole, ultimately to the whole plan of salvation. This group was a threat because God wanted to use this people that he brought out of Egypt to eventually, through that line, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, through the line of Israel, he eventually wanted to bring forth his son to die on the cross for the sins of the world. And Satan, behind the scenes, understood that perfectly. And make no mistake about it, Satan is a very dark and vicious individual. He knows where he's going and he is, uh, he is passionate in his hatred of God and his people and you and me. Uh, I've thought about this many times, that the devil hates me. And you know what? It's mutual. <laughs> I don't like him either. Amen. And I'm trusting the Lord to protect me wherever I go. Amen. Or I know the devil would kill me and he'd kill you. Well, anyway, now what's God going to do with this group? with this group that is being infected by the devil that is trying to destroy his people and stop his plan to bring forth his son through this line and to save the world or to save you and me. What's God going to do? Well, he has a number of options. He could do nothing. That's one option. Another option is he could just uh, allow the natural consequences of their idolatry inside of their minds to eventually run its course. Or... He could, he could take action. Now, I, in Loma Linda, there's a lot of doctors around here. And uh, this is a very appropriate question in this environment. If you're a physician and you have a patient and some disease like gangrene or something is running up your patient's arm, it's now at the elbow and it's heading up toward the shoulder and it's going to take over the whole body, what do you as a faithful physician do in this emergency situation? You said the word amputate. That's right. Now, if you take a knife and cut off his arm, I mean, wouldn't you be exposing yourself to uh, accusations of cruelty? Isn't that a cruel thing for you to do, to take a knife and cut off his arm? Not really. If you have the best interest of your patient at heart and you really care for him, you know that there is a time when it is necessary to take a knife and surgically insert it and remove that arm from that person to save his life. And really, essentially, that is what is going on here at the base of Mount Sinai. God is a physician. He's a lover. He's wise. He knows what he's dealing with. And it's an emergency, emergency situation. And he knew that something had to be done. And so we look at the next verse. And this is a powerful verse, but it's right there in the Bible. Moses looked at this middle group. And it says, he said to them, which was to the Levites on his right, he said, thus says the Lord God of Israel, put every man his sword by his side and go in and out from gate to gate throughout the camp and slay every man his brother and every man his companion and every man his neighbor. And the children of Levi did according to the word of Moses and there fell of the people that day about 3,000 men. When you read this in Patriarchs and Prophets, this is what it says, page 324. Those who performed this terrible work of judgment were acting by divine authority, executing the sentence of the King of Heaven. 
Men are to beware how in their human blindness they judge and condemn their fellow men. But when God commands them to execute his sentence upon iniquity, he is to be obeyed. Those who performed this painful act thus manifested their abhorrence of rebellion and idolatry and consecrated themselves more fully to the service of the true God. Amazing. The Lord honored their faithfulness by bestowing special distinction upon the tribe of Levi. This tells us a number of things. It tells us that God was behind it. God told them to do it. It was by divine authority. And the reason was because of their rebellion and their idolatry and something had to be done. It also tells us that for the Levites who carried out this act, it was a painful act. It was not pleasurable to them, just like it wasn't pleasurable to the Lord. But it had to be done. It had to be done. And then it says that when it was all over, God actually honored the Levites and gave them great distinction because they were willing to carry out this sentence in the midst of a very, very difficult situation. The last uh, verse right after that, or not the last verse in the chapter, but verse 29 says, Moses said, consecrate yourselves today to the Lord, even every man upon his son and upon his brother, that he may bestow upon you a blessing this day. God blessed the Levites, and he actually put them in charge of his temple, showing that he was pleased with their willingness to carry out such a difficult assignment because it had to be done. Back to Patriarchs and Prophets. It says here that it was necessary, page 325 and 326, that this sin should be punished as a testimony to surrounding nations of God's displeasure against idolatry. Love, no less than justice, demanded that this sin, for this sin, judgment should be inflicted. It was the mercy of God that thousands should suffer to prevent the necessity of visiting judgments upon millions. In order to save the many, he must punish the few. And then it says, it was in love to the world, in love to Israel, and even to the transgressors, that crime was punished. This crime was punished with swift and terrible severity. So when I read this chapter in Patriarchs and Prophets, and when I look at my Bible, it tells me that ultimately, underneath this situation and these actions was God's love because he knew this had to be done. He loved the people so much that he chose to put down the knife and to remove a group that was a threat to his people. Now, one of the issues that people deal with today has to do with the issue of force. Uh, we know there are certain statements in the Spirit of Prophecy where she says it is contrary to the character of God to exercise force. And, and I believe that. But we need to look at it carefully and make a clear distinction. When you, when you read this carefully, it's very clear that God will never use force to compel obedience. He will never do that. Never, ever, ever. He won't force you to follow him and to obey him. But it's also true that he will use force to put down rebellion. Amen. And there is a distinction there that we must understand. And it's very, very clear that this is exactly what happened in Exodus 32. And there are many other places in the Bible where things like this take place. Now go to Hebrews. I've got just a little bit more time left. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. This is a very, very important passage. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8. 
Hebrews 1, 8 and 9 describes the Son. It's a, it's a scripture about Jesus himself. And when Jesus was here, he revealed the character of God. Actually, it was Jesus at Mount Sinai that gave that command. In our book, The Character of God Controversy, we explain very clearly that a dichotomy between the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament is not biblical. Jesus said, I and my Father are one. They're united. Jesus was in the Old Testament. Jesus is in the New Testament. Jesus is revealing God's character in both places. There's a whole lot of... uh, Not only is there a lot of mercy in the New Testament, but there's a lot of justice as well. And not only is there justice in the Old Testament, but there's a whole lot of mercy as well. God gave that whole group mercy and said, come to me. And those that refused, that was when, finally, the Levites had to do what they had to do. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 8 says, to the Son. This is the Father talking about the Son. He said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Verse 9 says, you have loved righteousness. Now, this is talking about the Son, isn't it? It's very clear, verse 8, the Son. This is talking about the Son. And it says that He loves. We know that Jesus loves, don't we? The Bible says He loves, and what does He love? He loves righteousness, and He loves you, and He loves me. If it wasn't for His love, where would, be, where would we be? Jesus is full of love. Now, look at the second part of that verse. It says he loves righteousness, and what else does he do? It says he hates. Now, people think, wait a minute. Jesus doesn't hate. Jesus is full of love. How can Jesus hate? When you read The Desire of Ages, it talks all about Jesus' love. That was the book that changed my life 30 years ago. And in that book, it says that that Jesus only hated one thing. One thing, and he did hate it. And he hated it with a hatred that we'll never understand, not completely. And what is it that he hates? He hates sin. That's right. He hates it with a, with a passion. If you really think about it, if you really love, you'll hate. If you don't hate something, you don't really love. I love my family. I love my wife and my four-year-old boy and my one-year-old daughter who's now walking around like this all over the house. I love my family with a passion. Let's just say somebody broke into my house and grabbed uh, one of Seth's Thomas the Train toys and grabbed it and came after him in the middle of the night to crush his head like some people do in this world who are controlled by a vicious being who has hatred in his heart against God, against people, against you, and against me. How am I going to feel as a dad? I mean, if that happened to me, if somebody came into my house and tried to attack my wife or my children, I'd have to pray, Lord, help me to know what to do in this situation. If anyone tries to hurt my family, I tell you, I am going to be as passionate as passionate can be because I hate anything that would hurt my kids or my wife. Make sense? As we say among Jews, kapish. It's, it's the truth. When you love, you hate. And you hate anything that will hurt something you love. 
And I want to tell you that God, as part of his essential character, God hates sin with a passion. And one of these days, he's going to get rid of it himself. And I say, thank you, Father. Thank you, God, for having enough love and enough passion and enough willingness to fight against evil to make your universe clean and secure and happy one of these days. Last text. Turn to Revelation chapter 6. And we've got more to do this afternoon. I hope you'll stick with, stick with me. Last verse. Revelation 6, verse 16. About two weeks ago, my little boy and I were uh, out in the snow. He was all decked out in his snow clothes. And he had, we have a little sled with a rope that we took off our tire swing from our old house. And I clipped it on and and our little street goes around and around where we're uh, renting, and it was just full of snow. The snow had come down, and I, Seth sat on this little, um, little sled, and I hauled him around the neighborhood, and he just went, whippee, zipped down the road, and he was having a great time. And the snowbank was so high because the snow plows come up and down, I and mean, you don't know what that's like in Loma Linda here, but up there in Washington, I tell you, the snow's like this high because the snow plow's just piling it up. And Seth looked at one of those big snow piles and he said, Daddy, he said, if I were to fall in one of those snow piles, he said, and you couldn't find me, you'd just leave me, wouldn't you? <laughs> he said that. And I looked at him and I said, Seth, don't worry, I would not leave you. I would dig you out. And then he said, Daddy, what if you didn't have a shovel? <laughs> and without even thinking about it, I just said, I said, Seth, I would dig you out with my hands. I would dig you out even if it killed me. I'm going to get you out of that snow because I love you, because you're my son. Now, Revelation 6, 16, last verse. And I'll read one more quote from Desire of Ages, then we'll close. Revelation 6, at the end of the chapter, describes the great day of the Lord when God comes, when Jesus comes, when the sky cracks open and the Lord comes down. And it describes people crying for the mountains and rocks to fall on them. And verse 16 says, They say to the mountains, Fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits upon the throne and from what else? From the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of his wrath has come, and who shall be able to stand? The wrath of the Lamb. That phrase is used one time in the Bible. Right there. That's it. You'll never find it anywhere else. The wrath of the Lamb. Now, how does that make sense? Lamb and wrath. I mean, you think of a lamb as humble and gentle, but you think of wrath. What is the wrath of the lamb? In Desire of Ages, page 825, here it is. It says, Divine love has been stirred to its unfathomable depths for the sake of men. And angels marvel to behold in the recipients of so great love a mere surface gratitude. The angels are amazed that God has given us such intense revelation of his love and people just think, hey, that's great, let's just change the channel and watch something else. Angels marvel at the shallow appreciation of man of the love of God. Heaven stands indignant at the neglect shown to the souls of men. Would we know how Christ regards it? It said, how would a father and a mother feel did they know that their child lost in the cold and snow? had been passed by and left to perish by those who might have saved it. How would I feel if my son was stuck in the snow and there was a group of 
skiers that just walked by, saw him there. He had fallen in. He was saying, help me, I'm freezing. And they looked at him and said, well, hey, we got you know, to catch the lift. We're, we're, we're meeting our friends at the top of the mountain, and we, we don't want to be late. The powder's great right now. And they just went on. And there's my little boy in the ground, crying out and slowly getting colder and colder and colder. How would a mother or father feel? How would you feel? I know how I would feel. And she asked the question. And then she ties this in to Jesus. She, she says, would they not be terribly grieved and wildly indignant? Would they not denounce those murderers with wrath as hot as their tears and as intense as their love? They would. I would. The sufferings of every man are the sufferings of God's child. And those who reach out no helping hand to their perishing fellow beings provoke his righteous anger. And then it says, this is the wrath of the Lamb. That's it. Desire of Ages, page 825. The wrath of the Lamb, the wrath of God. There are times when he does withdraw and allow consequence to take their place. But there are other times when he acts in passion and in his heart. In his heart. He loves the sinner, but he hates sin. And Lucifer has gone beyond the point of no return. He did that a long time ago. And in his heart is personal, passionate, dark, evil hostility to God, to Jesus, to the Holy Spirit, to you and to me. He hates us. And he would kill us if he could and rejoice over it and do more to us than we can even want to think about. But praise the Lord, we have a powerful God who is good and merciful and gracious and kind and full of truth and who's also just. And there will come a time when God will put an end to evil and he'll do it personally and he'll do it passionately and underneath all of it will be the purest motivation the purest motivation of love because he wants to get rid of evil permanently so that his universe is happy and clean and pure and secure once again. And that is the God of the Bible. That is the true God. That is the God that reveals himself through Jesus Christ. And that's the God that we're going to be studying more about in our next meeting this afternoon, I believe it's at 3 o'clock, we're going to look at Gethsemane and the cross. And then the last meeting, we're going to look at the message of the righteousness of Christ. Righteousness. And tie it all in with the message of God's character. We've got a lot to do. I hope you'll stick with me. And may the Lord help us to know him as he is. And to love him. Because he loves us with a passion that leads him to die, to get us out of sin and get us up there. Let's bow our heads and pray. Dear Father in heaven, Daddy, oh God, Abba Father, please help us to understand you as you are. Help us to understand your character as it really is, to know your heart 
to have your name written in our foreheads, not to be misled by any currents that may lead us away from the truth as it is in Jesus. Please bless us and help us to understand our Bibles. Bring us back this afternoon and just give us, Lord, a great Sabbath. and May your love be in our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.